Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter of the show via Patreon, for which you will receive my undying gratitude. You will also get early access to episodes, whether you choose to contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click Support on the main menu. We continue to follow the life of Eleanor Pruitt, who carried on a years-long correspondence with Juliet Coney after she moved from Colorado to Wyoming to work for Clyde Stewart and hopefully start her own homestead. She and Stewart eventually married. My regular listeners know that I usually use letters like Eleanor's to discuss a larger story from history. For some time now, we've been focusing on one person's history. If you'd like to hear some of those larger stories, like the role of women in World War I or Freedom Summer 1964, I invite you to check out some older episodes. And if you're eager to hear what happens to Eleanor, sign up on Patreon so you can hear the next two episodes. Today's letter is one of my favorites. It has Eleanor's typical beautiful descriptions of her picturesque surroundings and her typical humor. It's also got some new characters and high drama. There are two words that were unfamiliar to me. A wikiup is an indigenous dwelling made of brushwood or covered with mats. A puncher, I believe, is another word for cowboy. One important note, contrary to the predominant portrayal in popular media, 20% of cowboys during the late 19th century were African-American. I've included some links in the show notes. And now onto the letter, which is undated. Dear Mrs. Coney, I am so afraid that you will get an overdose of culture from your visit to the hub and I'm sending you an antidote of our sage, sand, and sunshine. Mrs. Louderer had come over to see our boy. Together we had prepared supper and were waiting for Clyde, who had gone to the post office. Soon he came, and after the usual friendly wrangling between him and Mrs. Louderer, we had supper. Then they began their inevitable game of cribbage while I sat near the fire with baby on my lap. Clyde was telling us of a raid on a ranch about 75 miles away, in which the thieves had driven off 30 head of fine horses. There were only two of the thieves, and the sheriff with a large posse was pursuing them and forcing every man they came across into the chase, and a regular manhunt was on. It was interesting only because one of the thieves was a noted outlaw, then out on parole and known to be desperate. We were in no way alarmed, the trouble was all in, in the next county, and somehow that always seemed so far away. We knew if the men ever came together, there would be a pitched battle, with bloodshed and death, but there seemed little chance that the sheriff would ever overtake the men. I remember I was feeling sorry for the poor fellows with the price on their heads. The little pink man on my lap had softened my heart wonderfully. Jereen was enjoying the pictures in a paper illustrating early days on the range, wild scenes of roping and branding. 
I had remarked that I didn't believe there would be any more such times. When Mrs. Lauderer replied, That just shows you how much it is you don't know. You shall come to mine house, and when away you come, it shall be wiser as when you left. I had kept at home very closely all summer, and a little trip seemed the most desirable thing I could think of, particularly as the baby would be in no way endangered. But long ago I learned that the quickest way to get what I want is to not want it, outwardly at least. So I assumed an indifference that was not very real. The result was that the next morning everyone was in a hurry to get me started. Clyde greasing the little old wagon that looks like a twin to Cora Bell's, and Mrs. Lauderer, who thinks no baby can be properly brought up without goose grease, busy greasing the baby, so as he shall not some cold take yet. Mrs. Lauderer had ridden over, so her saddle was laid in the wagon, and her pony, Bismarck, was hitched in with Chubb, the laziest horse in all Wyoming. I knew Clyde could manage very well while I should be gone, and there wasn't a worry to interfere with the pleasure of my outing. We jogged along right merrily, Mrs. Lauderer devoting her entire attention to trying to make Chubb pull even with Bismarck, Jerina and myself enjoying the ever-changing views. I wish I could lay it all before you. Summer was departing with reluctant feet, unafraid of winter's messengers, the chill winds. That day was especially beautiful. The gleaming snow peaks and heavy forest, south and at our backs, west, north, and east, long, broken lines of the distant mountains with their blue haze. Pilot Butte to the north, 100 miles away, stood out clear and distinct as though we could drive there in an hour or two. The dull, neutral-colored Badland Hills nearer us are interesting only because we know they are full of the fossil remains of strange creatures long since extinct. For a distance, our way lay up Henry Forks Valley. Prosperous little ranches dotted the view. Ripening grain rustled pleasantly in the warm morning sunshine, and closely cut alfalfa fields made bright spots of emerald against the dun landscape. The quaking aspens were just beginning to turn yellow. Everywhere purple asters were a blaze of glory, except where the rabbit bush grew in clumps, waving its feathery plumes of gold. Over it all the sky was so deeply blue, with little airy white clouds drifting lazily along. Every breeze brought scents of cedar, pine, and sage. At this point the road wound along the base of cedar hills, some magpies were holding a noisy caucus among the trees. A pair, of, a pair of bluebirds twittered excitedly upon a fence, and high overhead a great black eagle soared. All was so peaceful that horse thieves and desperate men seemed too remote to think about. Presently we crossed the creek and headed our course due north toward the desert and the buttes. I saw that we were not going to reach Mrs. Lauderer's ranch, so I asked where we were supposed to be going. We is going to the mouth of Dry Creek by, where it goes Black's Fork into. There mine punchers holds 500 steers. We shall decamp visit, and you shall come back wiser as when you went. Well, we both came away wiser. I had thought we were going only to the Lauderer Ranch, so I put up no lunch, and there was nothing for the horses either but it was too beautiful a time to let such things annoy us. 
Anyway, we expected to reach camp just after noon, so a little delay about dinner didn't seem so bad. We had entered the desert by noon. The warm red sands fell away from the wheels with soft hissing sounds. Occasionally, a little horned toad sped panting along before us, suddenly darting aside to watch with bright, cunning eyes as we passed. Someone had placed a buffalo skull beside a big bunch of sage, and on the sage a splendid pair of elk's antlers. We saw many such scattered over the sands, grim reminders of a past forever gone. About three o'clock we reached our destination, but no camp was there. We were more disappointed than I can tell you, but Mrs. Lauderer merely went down to the river, a few yards away, and cut an armful of willow sticks wherewith to coax, coax Chubb to a little brisker pace, and then we took the trail of the departed mess wagon. Shortly, we topped a low range of hills, and beyond, in a cup-like valley, was the herd of sleek beauties feeding contentedly on the lush green grass. I suppose it sounds odd to hear desert and river in the same breath, but within a few feet of the river, the desert begins, where nothing grows but sage and greasewood. In oasis-like spots will be found plenty of grass, where the soil is nearer the surface and where the sub-irrigation keeps the roots watered. In one of these spots, the herd was being held. When the grass became short, they would be moved to another such place. It required altogether 15 men to take care of the herd because many of the cattle had been bought in different places, some in Utah, and these were always trying to run away and work back toward home, so they required constant herding. Soon we caught the glimmer of white canvas and knew it was the cover of the mess wagon, so we headed that way. The camp was quite near the river so as to be handy to water and to have willows for food. Not a soul was at camp. The fire was out, and even the ashes had blown away. The mess box was locked, and Mrs. Lauderer's loud calls brought only echoes from the high rock walls across the river. However, there was nothing to do but make the best of it, so we tethered the horses and went down to the river to relieve ourselves of the dust that had seemed determined to unite with the dust that we were made of. Mrs. Lauderer declared that she was, quote, so mad at notings and would fire dot Herman so soon as she could see him already. End quote. Presently, we saw the most grotesque figure approaching camp. It was Herman, the fat cook, on hunks, a gaunt, ugly old horse, whose days of usefulness under the saddle were past and who had degenerated into a workhorse. The disgrace of it seemed to be driving him into a decline but he stumbled along bravely under his heavy load. A string of a dozen sage chickens swung on one side, and across the saddle in front of Herman lay a young antelope. A volley of German ab abuse was hurled at poor Herman, who wound up in as plain American as Mrs. Lauderer could speak. And who is going to pay the game warden the fine of dot antelope what you have shot? And how is it that we have come to camp by and so starved as we is hungry? And no cook and no food? Is that for why you is paid? Herman was some Dutch himself, however. He demanded, How is it that you have not so much sense as you have tongue? 
How have you lived so long as always in duet and don't know enough to hunt a beanpole when you reach your own camp, hey? Mrs. Louderer was very properly subdued and I delighted when he removed the stones from where the fire had been, exposing a pit from which, with a pair of pot hooks, he lifted pots and ovens of the most delicious meat, beans, and potatoes. From the mess box, he brought bread and apricot pie. From a nearby spring, he brought us a bright new pail full of clear sparkling water, but Mrs. Louderer insisted upon tea, and in a short time he had it ready for us. The tarpaulin was spread on the ground for us to eat from, and soon we were showing an astonished cook just how much food two women and a child could get away with. I ate a good deal of ashes with my pot roast, and we all ate more or less sand, but fastidiousness about food is a good thing to get rid of when you come west to camp. When the regular supper time arrived, the punchers began to gather in, and the boss, who had been to town about some business, came in and brought back the news of the manhunt. The punchers sat about the fire, eating hungrily from their tin plates and eagerly listening to the recital. Two of the boys were tenderfeet, one from Tennessee called Daisy Bell, because he whistled that tune so much and because he had nosebleeds so much. Couldn't even ride a bronco, but his nose would bleed for hours afterwards. And the other, Niok, so called from his native state. Niok was a great boaster, said he wasn't afraid of no durned outlaw, said his father had waded in bloody gore up to his neck and that he was a chip off the old block. Rather hoped the chase would come our way so he could try his marks marksmanship. The air began to grow chill and the sky was becoming overcast. Preparations for the night busied everybody. Fresh ponies were being saddled for the night relief the hard-ridden, tired ones that had been used that day being turned loose to graze. Some poles were set up and a tarpaulin arranged for Mrs. Louderer and me to sleep under. Mrs. Louderer and Jerine lay down on some blankets and I unrolled some more, which I was glad to notice were clean for Baby and myself. I can't remember ever being more tired and sleepy, but I couldn't go to sleep. I could hear the boss giving orders in quick, decisive tones. I could hear the punchers discussing the raid, finally each of them telling exploits of his favorite heroes of outlawry. I could hear Herman, busy among his pots and pans. Then he mounted the tongue of the west mess wagon and called out, quote, We have for breakfast cackleberries. First what is come is served, and those what is sleep late gets noddings. I had never before heard of cackleberries and asked sleepy Mrs. Louderer what they were. Wait until morning and you shall see, was all the information that I received. Soon a gentle drizzling rain began and the punchers hurriedly made their beds as they do so, twitting Niok about making his between our tent and the fire. I heard one of them say, You're dead right, pard to make your bed here, for if them outlaws come this way, they'll think you're one of the women and they won't shoot you. Just us men are in danger. Confound your fool tongues. How are they going to know there's any women here? I tell you, fellers, my old man waited in bloody gore up to his neck, and I'm just like him. They kept up this friendly parlaying until I dozed off to sleep, 
but I couldn't stay asleep. I don't think I was afraid, but I was certainly nervous. The river was making a mad moaning sound. The rain fell gently, like tears. All nature seemed to be mourning about something. Happened or going to happen. Down by the river, an old owl hooted dismally. Half a mile away, the night herders were riding round and round the herd. One of them was singing. Faint but distant came his song. Bury me not on the lone prairie. Over and over again he sang it. After a short interval of silence, he began again. This time it was, I'm thinking of my dear old mother, 10,000 miles away. Two punchers stirred uneasily and began talking. I heard one of them say, Blast that Tex. He certainly has it bad tonight. What the deuce makes him sing so much? I feel like bawling like a kid. I wish he'd shut up. He's homesick. I guess we all are, too. But they ain't no use staying awake and letting it soak in. Shake the water off the tarp. You're letting water catch on your, on your side, and it's running into my ear. That is the last I heard for a long time. I must have slept. I remember that the baby stirred, and I spoke to him. It seemed to me that something struck against the guy rope that held our tarpaulin taut, but I wasn't sure. I was in that dozy state, half asleep, when nothing is quite clear. It seemed as though I had been listening to the tramp of feet for hours, and that a whole army must be filing past, when I was brought suddenly into keen consciousness by a loud voice demanding, Hello, whose outfit is this? The boss called back, This is the 7-Up, Louderers. What's wanted? Is that you, Matt? This is Ward's posse. We've been after Meeks and Murdoch all night. It's so darn dark we can't see, but we gotta keep going. Their horses are about played. We changed at Hadley's, but we ain't had a bite to eat, and we gotta search your camp. The boss answered, Sure thing. Roll off and take a look. Hi, there, you, Herm. Get out of there and fix these fellers something to eat. We were surrounded. I could hear the clanking of spurs and the sound of wet, tired horses shaking themselves and rattling the saddles on every side. I heard the sheriff ask, Who's in the wiki up? Some women and kids, Mrs. Louderer and a friend. In an incredibly short time, Herman had a fire coaxed into a blaze, and Matt Watson and the sheriff went from bed to bed with a lantern. They searched the mess wagon even, although Herman had been sleeping there. The sheriff unceremoniously flung out the wood and kindling the cook had stored there. He threw back the flap of our tent and flashed the lantern about. He could see plainly enough that there were but the four of us, but I wondered how they saw outside where the rain made it worse. The lantern was so dirty. I heard the sheriff say, Yes, we've been pushing them hard. They're headed north, evidently intend to hit the railroad, but they'll never make it. Every ford on the river is guarded, except right along here, and there's five parties ranging on the other side. My party's split. A bunch has gone on to the bridge. If they find anything, they're to fire a volley. Same with us. I knew they couldn't cross the river nowhere but at the bridge or here. The men had gathered about the fire and were gulping hot coffee and cold beef and bread. The rain ran off their slickers in little rivulets. I was sorry the fire was not better because some of the men had on only ordinary coats 
and the drizzling rain seemed determined that the fire should not blaze high. Before they had finished eating, we heard a shot, followed by a regular medley of dull booms. The men were in their saddles and gone in less time than it takes to tell it. The fire had ceased, save for a few sharp reports from the revolvers, like a coyote's spiteful snapping. The pounding of the horse's hoofs grew fainter, and soon all was still. I kept my ears strained for the slightest sound. The cook and the boss, the only men up, hurried back to bed. Watson had ridden, risen so hurriedly that he had not been careful about his tarp, and water had run into his bed. But that wouldn't disconcert anybody but a tenderfoot. I kept waiting in tense silence to hear them come back with dead or wounded, but there was not a sound. The rain had stopped. Mrs. Louderer struck a match and said it was three o'clock. Soon she was asleep. Through a rift in the clouds, a star peeped out. I could smell the wet sage and the sand. A little breeze came by, bringing Texas song once more. Oh, it matters not, so I've been told, how the body lies when the heart grows cold. Oh, dear, the world seemed so full of sadness. I kissed my baby's little downy head and went to sleep. It seems that cowboys are, are rather sleepy-headed in the morning, and it is part of the cook's job to get them up. The next I knew, Herman had a tin pan on which he was beating a vigorous tattoo, all the time hollering, We have cackleberries and antelope steak for breakfast. The baby was startled by the noise, so I attended to him and then dressed myself for breakfast. I went down to the little spring to wash my face. The morning was lowering and gray, but a wind had sprung up and the clouds were parting. There are times when anticipation is a great deal better than realization. Never having seen a cackleberry, my imagination pictured them as very luscious wild fruit, and I was so afraid none would be left that I couldn't wait until the men should eat and be gone. So I surprised them by joining at the very earliest about the fire. Herman began serving breakfast. I held out my tin plate and received some of the steak, an egg, and two delicious biscuits. We had our coffee in big enameled cups without sugar or cream, but it was piping hot and so good. I had finished my egg and steak, so I told Herman I was ready for my cackleberries. Listen to her now, will you? he asked. And then indignantly, How many cackleberries does you want? You have had so many as I have cooked for you. Then such a roar of laughter. Herman gazed at me in astonishment, and Mr. Watson gently explained to me that eggs and cackleberries were one and the same. Neok was not, he was not yet up, so Herman walked over to his bed, kicked him a few times, and told him he would scald him if he didn't turn out. It was quite light by then. Neok joined us, in a few minutes. What the deuce was you fellers kicking up such a rumpus for last night? You blamed Blockhead, don't you know? The boss answered. Why, the sheriff searched this camp last night. They had a battle down at the bridge afterwards, and either they're all killed or else no one is hurt. They would have been here otherwise. Ward took a shot at them once yesterday, but I guess he didn't hit. The men got away, anyway, and during your sleepyhead, you just lay there and snored. Well, I'll be danged. Words had failed him, 
His wonder and disgust were so great. Nyok turned to get his breakfast. His light shirt was blood-stained in the back. Seemed to be soaked. Someone asked, What's the matter with your shirt? It's soaked with blood? He said, Then that darn Daisy Bell has been crawling in with me, that's all. Blame his bleeding snoot. I'll punch it and give it something to bleed for. Then Mr. Watson said, Daisy ain't been in all night. He took Jesse's place when we went to town after supper. That started an inquiry and search, which speedily showed that someone with a bleeding wound had gotten in with Neoc. It also developed that Mr. Watson's splendid horse and saddle were gone. The rope that the horse had been picketed with, lying just as it had been cut from his neck. Now all was bustle and excitement. It was plainly evident that one of the outlaws had lain hidden on Yock's bed while the sheriff was there, and that afterwards he had saddled the horse and made his escape. His own horse was found in the willows, the saddle cut loose and the bridle off, but the poor jaded thing had never moved. By sunup the search party returned, all too worn out with 24 hours in the saddle to continue the hunt. They were even too worn out to eat, but flung themselves down for a few hours' rest. The chase was hopeless anyway, for the search party had gone north in the night. The wounded, the wounded outlaw had doubtless heard the sheriff talking and, the coast being clear to the southward, had got the fresh horse and was by that time probably safe in the heavy forests and mountains of Utah. His getting in with New York had been a daring ruse, but a successful one. Where his partner was, no one could guess. But by that time, all the camp, excepting Herman and Mrs. Louderer, were so panicky that we couldn't have made a rational suggestion. Neok, white around his mouth, approached Mrs. Louderer. He said, I want to quit. Calmly sipping her coffee, she said, Well, you have done it, he stammered. I'm sick, she said. I know you is. I have before now seen men get sick when they is scared to death. My old daddy, he began. Yes, I know he waded the creek one time and you has had cold feet ever since. Poor fellow. I felt sorry for him. I had cold feet myself just then, and I was powerfully anxious to warm them by my own fire, where a pair of calm blue eyes would reassure me. I didn't get to see the branding that was to have taken place on the range that day. The boss insisted on taking the trail of his valued horse. He was very angry. He thought there was a traitor among the posse. Who started the firing at the bridge, no one knew. And Watson said openly that it was done to get the sheriff away from camp. My own home looked mighty good to me when we drove up that evening. I don't want any more wildlife on the range. Not for a while, anyway. Your ex-wash lady, Eleanor Rupert Stewart. The letters of Eleanor Rupert are in the public domain. The music is performed by Pratlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click Support on the main menu to visit the American Epistles Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. 
American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.